Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. Welcome to another episode of Empowered Leadership. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. And today I'm joined by Chris Bayaki, founder and CEO of Resolute Philanthropy, a fundraising consultancy that works with nonprofits to scale their revenues and impact. Prior to starting his own firm, Chris spent over 20 years in the nonprofit sector. He's held leadership positions at several large California nonprofits, including Habitat for Humanity. One thing I particularly appreciate about Chris is his relationship-centric approach to fundraising and leadership writ large. Chris really understands how to systematically build and strengthen relationships that generate meaningful impact over time and to do that work at scale. I highlight this strength because it's really an absolutely essential skill for every leader to master regardless of their sector. After all, if you want to move beyond driving performance within your vertical to creating value across your organization, you need to master the art of influence. And that all comes down to relationships. So I hope regardless of where you sit, if you're a fundraiser, a nonprofit leader, or somebody who works in the private sector, that you'll stay tuned because we're going to be sharing a lot of powerful insights from Chris's experience that are really applicable across a range of industry sectors, positions, and objectives. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Empowered Leadership. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be talking to you. I've been listening to the podcast, and I'm really happy to be on the call with you. I'm equally excited to have you on. As you know, the name of the show is Empowered Leadership. So the first question I always like to ask is, what does empowered leadership mean to you? I knew you were going to ask that. I think empowered leadership, it's almost a kind of circles back in on itself. It's about empowering leaders and empowering everyone in the organization to take a leadership role. It's in empowering leaders to take responsibility for being leaders. I think ultimately it's about trust. Like an empowered leader is a leader that trusts their team to do the work. Therefore, the giving the leader the ability to focus on the vision, focus on the drive, focus on the big picture stuff while building a culture where the people that work for them and with them are doing the work they do. And that happens, I think it can happen at any level in an organization. If there's a leader, that leader needs to be trusted and needs to in turn trust their team. I think that's really at the heart of empowered leadership is leadership that trusts the system and trusts the people they work with to kind of get out there and do the work. Yeah. So there's that clarity of role and responsibility, that distribution of power, and then the trust that enables it to work. Yeah. Well, like a well-oiled machine. Sure. I mean, leadership without trust is that's how you get micromanagement. That's how you get, you know, all sorts of bad things. You have to trust your people and you have to be a leader that people can trust in. So it really has to happen in both sides of that equation. Yeah. There are two things that came up in your answer that I want to follow up on. I'll start with the first because it came up first. 
And that is the word empowered, which you used in your response. And we both work a lot with nonprofits and have played a lot in that space. And I know that word empower can be really controversial in nonprofits. Mm. That's often a word that comes up when I do vision mission work and people Uh debate, you know, is this paternalistic because we're assuming we are giving power that we have, or is this something that is more about enabling people and equipping people to take the power that's already available? I mean, there's just that word holds a lot in the nonprofit space. And I'd love to hear for you when you use that word empower in your answer, what was coming up for you? That's interesting. I've only recently started kind of feeling around the edges of some of the more nuanced or problematic ways we can use that word. And it's, I think, a good exercise. I think when I use it, I think in terms of not necessarily giving, like you don't have this unless I give it to you, but in terms of allowing or in terms of removing obstacles too. Like if I'm empowering you to do a job, that also means I want to remove things that might stop you from doing that job. It also means that I am going to create systems that support you and help you do the job, whether that's systems of accountability or systems of support. I think that when a leader is empowering a team member to do something or when a someone is empowered to do a thing, I think at its best, it's they've got authority, they've got permission, they've got a runway to do what they need to do. And I can see definitely why it could be perceived or it could be even used as a way to be like, you know, Alexander, you can't do this thing unless I let you do it. But I like to think in a more positive way and a more constructive way, it's Alexander, here's the thing I'm asking you to do. And here's the tools I'm giving you to be successful. And I'm going to support you in that effort as, you know, someone on a different, maybe in a different part of the org chart to help you to succeed. Yeah, I love that answer, both creating the structure and systems and then removing barriers, which I often think, at least in my experience doing growth guidance work with leaders, often they underestimate the value contribution of that work to remove barriers for their team. I'm a huge, huge believer in that power of removing barriers. I think that's such a critical role a leader can play is you just like, if I'm asking you to, to do 10 things. Is there an 11th thing that I can outsource, do myself, throw overboard, whatever it is, in order to give you permission and the bandwidth to do those 10 things? And also, especially for listeners and large organizations, the one barrier that I often see is not necessarily stop work, but really increase the time required is the barrier related to buy-in. So yeah really working as a leader to figure out how can I help socialize this? How can I help to get the resource alignment? What can I do to make sure that we're consistently communicating what we're doing so people see you know, why this work is valuable, how it connects to the strategy? That type of work is really the work that leaders are well-suited to do. Yes. And it makes the work that their people do so much easier and also faster. I see right. so much time waste spent in socializing ideas and getting buy-in where I think often the leader could have done that much more quickly up front and then been better at communicating on an ongoing basis to maintain the buy-in. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like the leader has one of the skills the leader can bring to the table is knowing who the stakeholders are, knowing how to connect with them, knowing how to present or how to position an idea, how to pre-arm or pre-warn 
the team about like potential pitfalls that the project team might not know, but the leader's like, oh, I know four steps down the line, we're going to have to work with this department and this department needs to see things in this way. So let's get ready for that now. So it's that kind of, I think it goes back to something I've heard on the podcast and something I certainly believe that leadership needs to have that long vision. So that like, they don't need to be in the weeds. They need to be looking down the field and to see what's coming and how do we need to prepare for it? Yeah. And that notion of stakeholder mapping is so important. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Whenever I work with leaders to build their strategy skills, they're often surprised that one of the first things we'll do is, you know, around implementation side of it or development side is to figure out, okay, who needs to be involved and engage. And often one of the first things we do then is to create that stakeholder map. And people don't always think about putting that type of rigor and structure behind it. But when you do, to your point, it really helps you to think long run and make sure you're laying the groundwork, not just for today, but for four months, four years down, et cetera. Just an example from the fundraising world where I spent a lot of my time is I would work with fundraisers who are really skilled and really focused and really engaged at building relationships with donors and potential donors. And then they kind of come back into the building and they fall short. Why? Because they don't use that same skills at building relationships with internal stakeholders. Like I would tell team members, like you need to do as much work connecting with the XYZ foundation as you do with the accounting team or the program team. We need to develop these relationships when we're talking about, you know, from the fundraising perspective, it's not just about what the donor thinks or how we talk to the donors. It's about how do we work with our internal colleagues who might be motivated or incentivized to do things a little differently, but we still need to work together. So that's a state form of that stakeholder mapping from the nonprofit space that we really need to pay attention to. Yeah, I want to keep on that topic of relationship building because it's so important and that's something that fundraisers have to do exceptionally well. Yes. And it's a particularly difficult context because you're influencing, you don't have power. Mm -hmm. And you're in competition for Mm -hmm. somebody's scarce resources. So I'm curious, what lessons can you give to leaders? Maybe they're not fundraisers, but they know they want to improve their relationship building skills. What lessons do you have from your work in fundraising that might be appropriate to those other contexts we've talked about? I think that when you talk about relationship building, I think people forget that we do it all the time. They think like it's somehow different than what you do in your life. And by way of an example, so I was at a nonprofit and one of the executive team members wanted to put an ad in the newspaper about an upcoming event. And their philosophy was people will see the ad and they will go to the event. And I had to push back on this. And I said, well, in your life, in your day-to-day life, when you're reading the newspaper, have you ever looked at an ad and then said, honey, I know what we're doing this weekend. We're going to this nonprofit's Mm -hmm. event. So my point was, your personal experience counts. And so when it comes to relationship building, how do we make friends? How do we build connections in the workplace? You do that by being trustworthy and assuming trust in others. You do that by being authentic and maybe even being vulnerable. You do that by being clear about what you need and being grateful for what you receive. All those things are what you'd bring to a donor relationship. There's not a trick It's just about being authentic, persistent, patient, and on the nonprofit side, being excited about the mission, about the cause you are a part in. 
I think those elements really serve you well. Like what makes you make a friend with someone is how you feel together, how you work together, the connection, that feeling of camaraderie or that feeling of honesty when you can talk with somebody. And you've got to bring that into the workplace. You've got to bring that into talking with potential customers or potential clients or potential donors. And I think that authenticity is really, really, really important. And from a a leadership perspective, you've got to build a team where people feel safe being authentic Mm. and feel protected that they can share what they think and contribute in an authentic way. All those things kind of work together to build an environment where you can really build strong relationships. Aside from leaders modeling the way by being vulnerable and authentic themselves and kind of being the first to share, what other guidance do you give to fundraisers or leaders with whom you work about how to build those types of conditions within your team to strengthen relationships? Yeah, that's tricky. What I've seen work and what I have done in the past, you know, building a, because really kind of what you're talking about is how do you build a culture in an organization or a team? So one part of it, it's one part of it. I think part of building a culture, honestly, is what are the things we do all the time? What are the repetitive, persistent, consistent things we do? I led a fundraising team at Habitat for Humanity of Orange County, and we got into the habit. We would close every fundraising team meeting with a question. And I would always phrase it like this. I would ask one team member to give me a scale of one to 10. For example, 10 is the best meal you've ever had at the restaurant you love the most. And one is, you know, the worst leftovers from the most B grade fast food joint ever. And then everyone would go around the table and say, how do you feel this week? How do you feel today? Just one to 10 and no explanation. No one's obligated to say why they feel away. And everyone goes around the table. And then we would close by saying, okay, let's make sure we're holding up and we're boosting up and we're supporting our friends who have low numbers today. And let's see what we can do to make everyone have a high number this week. And we do that every week, every week, Mm -hmm. every week. And what I was trying to do is show everybody that A, it's okay to feel how you feel, that we all bring different energy to the table and sometimes we're not feeling our best. And it's not about interrogating that or forcing people to feel a way. But it's about realizing, okay, if your colleague is feeling low, let's see what we can do to help them during the week. Not that they have to tell us why they're feeling low or anything like that. So that was a culture that I was building that was really focused on the emotional impact or the emotional weight of fundraising. It was something we wanted to call out and shine a light on and make part of. And so doing things like that, being consistent in how we talk about those things, that helps build that culture. And I think that helps build an environment where relationships are valued. And there's, you know, there's other little things like, and, you know, old school leadership philosophy, like, you know, you praise in public and you criticize in private, even little things Mm -hmm. like that really matter. Like taking people aside to say, Hey, I'm the question about this. Let's talk about this. Asking lots of questions about each other, about asking questions to clients. And when it comes to that internal, those internal relationships, interdepartment relationships, the same thing, taking the time to get to know, you know, hey, you're on this team, you know, what are your goals like? How do you like to work? How can we work together? Like really being strategic, being direct about those kind of things. I think all that helps build a culture where relationships can thrive. And I think people can do good work together. Maybe to put a few fine points on, I think some high notes from what you shared. One is creating space for vulnerability, but not requiring it. 
Yes. And yes, I yes, think yes. that's like people have to <laughs> feel like they get to opt in yep. when people feel forced to share, which I've seen happen a mm. lot, like with the highly personal icebreakers and meetings that everyone has to answer. It's like you do more harm than good when people feel forced to get vulnerable. So I think that's such an important distinction. Absolutely. And then the second thing that you'd shared that I think is so valuable is really making sure you're taking space to step outside of the day-to-day to-dos and to think about what's the longer run vision for how we can work together. What do we want to achieve with our relationship? And giving space for those exploratory conversations can be so powerful in I think creating a solid foundation so that you're better able to navigate the bumps in the road that come up in the day to day. You're absolutely, I mean, iceberg. I was nodding a lot during that conversation, (laughs) which I know is really helpful behavior for a podcast. It goes on YouTube. So, okay. Oh, I wish (laughs) I should have worn a tie. The issue of icebreakers. Yeah, 100%. Like, I love icebreakers. I'm a huge fan of asking icebreaker questions. But I love, I mean, there's a real, I think there's a real niche I like. I like questions about things that bring joy or childhood memories or food is always a rich topic. We had a wild conversation at a department meeting once about what form of potato would you erase from the earth? And I was surprised how many people were defending steak fries. Come on, steak fries? Anyway, but not, yeah, not making it mandatory. I think that goes to like a, a leadership principle that I think late in life really started to figure out that it's not about you know, it's not the golden rule. It's the platinum rule. It's not doing unto others as you want them to do to you. It's treating people like they want to be treated, not like you want to be treated, like not assuming that there's a one size fits all approach to engaging with a team member and helping that team member succeed. Like you need to, as a leader, you're going to need to create a pretty detailed, personalized playbook for how you make space for people and how you let people connect with you. And that's tough work, right? If you got a big team, that's really tough work. But that's what this that's what why, you need. This is why managers should more than like five or six people max reporting to them because each person needs something different to be successful. And your Absolutely. job is not as people manager or a leader to say, this is the way I manage you accommodate me. Your job is to say, what do you need to be successful? How can I support you? And make sure Mm -hmm. that you're continually asking those open-ended empowering questions to ensure that your person is achieving their goals, they're getting the support they need, and you're showing up in the way that they need you to. And to your point, that is hard work. You can't do that for 10 to 15 people unless that's literally the only thing you're doing in your job. Exactly. Well, I should say you can't do it well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it takes discipline. It takes focus. It takes sincerity. I mean, you really, I think at the heart of it is you have to believe that the people that you're working with want to do good. They are doing their best. You know, no one's out there looking to, hopefully no one's out there looking to like, oh, I'm going to do a really, really bad job today. They want to do their best. And the manager, the leader's role is to like, how can I make that happen for you? So we both agree on that. And yet I'm consistently surprised by the number of articles I'm seeing in, you know, Forbes, LinkedIn, big publications, and also about sidebar conversations I'm hearing in forums and executive groups I attend around like power, you know, is power shifting from the employee to the employer or power around returning to office so we can make sure people are getting things oh, done. Yeah, yeah. And it just seems like there is a real 
lack of trust within our teams today and specifically between senior leaders and more the individual contributors. And I'm curious, are you seeing that? Yeah. I mean, obviously I've probably read a lot of the same articles and seen a lot of the same headlines. And I think return to the office is definitely a flashpoint for some of those conversations. And I have seen that. I have seen that kind of conflict about, you know, will they do what we need them to do if we don't watch them do it? Some of that I think is just from, I mean, so much of our business world is predicated on and built upon like industrial era methodologies, right? It's like, you got to come in to build the thing, to build the widget, and you can't do that from anywhere else. And you've got to, and I mean, even a lot of leadership, a lot of productivity philosophy used to be based off of like, what's the minimum amount of movement an employee can do to mm-hmm. accomplish the task there? And then you multiply that by how many, you know, how many an hour and how many a day. And that's your product. I mean, so a lot of really like human as worker as machine mythology is still kind of baked into, I think, some leadership philosophy. I also think ultimately it comes down to accountability and leadership. I mean, if you're a leader and you think your team won't do the job, if you're not there watching them, that's because you're a bad leader. I like to call it lazy leadership. (laughs) It's lazy leadership if you've got to watch, if you've got to watch the activity, it's lazy leadership because it's passive. If you want to really be an active, engaged, highly successful leader, you've got to watch the outcomes Mm -hmm. and trust that people are going to do the activities and give them space to try different activities to get to the outcomes. But it's a lot more work for leaders to get clear on outcomes, to manage people to that. It's just, it's harder. It's harder. Yeah. And it also takes an adjustment in goals and expectations and, you know, the one leader that's doing that, who are they reporting to and how do they view it? If the thing doesn't get done, I'm not going to get paid or I won't get my bonus or the company will be in trouble. So we've got to control all the way down and letting go of that control is scary and you will fail. And there will be times where the thing doesn't work. And then that'll be the cause for some people to raise their hand and see, I told you, like I told you, you have to, you know, you got to be in the desk from 8.30 to 5.30 every day, no questions asked. And I think the more we learn about how people work together, about how people think, about what people need to feel committed and supported, the more we know it's complicated. We need to be more flexible. We need to be more human about it. That takes some courage to get there, right? It's a challenging because it's always easier to do the thing that we've always done than it is to do the new thing. Yeah, I think that's a lot of where I see the dialogue around power, you know, I'd asked you, are you seeing it? And we talked about why it might exist. And I think part of it is, like you said, that notion of Taylorism and how that's perpetuated through companies and Mm -hmm. led to us continuing to treat people like knowledge workers, like machines, even though their work is not rote or anything like that. Right. I think another part of it is what you just alluded to, which is fear-based. And it's you know, our world has changed so much in the last three years. It's continuing to change, even though we're out of COVID. And we know the body and the brain change can create when we don't choose it, change can create stress. And when we get stressed, we tend to tunnel vision on solving the problem at hand and just getting it away. So if the problem at hand is uncertainty and change, and that's Mm -hmm. the stressor, I think a lot of people, even if it's not conscious, are trying to resolve that quickly by going back to what worked before, Sure, which is 
the old ways of working pre-COVID, but just don't align to the new world that we live in. Right. And the question that's not asked, of course, is did it really work before? Like there's a difference. I mean, there's a difference between (laughs) results and actually a sustainable model. And I think COVID was a breaking point for many people for an unsustainable view of work that, you know, you can't work till you get sick and you can't expect the workers to come in sick. Like even a little thing like that. I remember I've worked at places and I'm sure you have too, where people were sick and they just come Mm -hmm. to the office. Or it's you're sick and then you work from home and then you get the IM like, I'm so sorry you're sick, but you're still going to have that in two hours, right? right? It's still going to happen. (laughs) And I I think, yeah. So I I think a lot of it is a lot of the changes we're seeing and how people relate to work are, I think they do call for the question like, well, did the old system work? Maybe it worked for some people, but did it work for everybody? And I think that's a lot of what the question is. It's like, well, are we actually building a work system or a work team that works for everybody. You know, does your system work for the employee that's got two young kids at home? Does your system work for the employee yeah. that might be neurodiverse? Does your system work? I mean, and again, that's hard work. Like all of yeah, a sudden, we all it's know so people for whom that system didn't work. The exactly. person who, yeah. you know, couldn't afford to live close to the office and spent four hours a day commuting. The person who, a friend of mine, had a kid childcare in Portland is thousands of dollars a month. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. And so for her going back to work was literally a labor of love because her entire paycheck went to childcare. Sure. It continued just to be her husband's paycheck that supported their family. I mean, that's a false dichotomy. Their paychecks are shared, but you get what I mean. I understand. I have ADD. I've shared this on a prior podcast. Being in an open office environment was literally the worst thing for me. I was constantly distracted and angry because people just wouldn't stop doing things around me, which it's an open office. It's their workspace. And I think we're what's changed that I don't think a lot of leaders realize is People during COVID had to get used to uncertainty. And now I think what held a lot of people back from making changes in 2019 and before was stepping into the unknown and rejecting what you'd grown up with, what everyone around you was doing was really scary. Yeah. And uncertainty was scary. And in COVID, we learned we can tolerate a lot more uncertainty and change. It's a good point. Than ever before. And I think going forward, it's decreased that tolerance to settle for just out of fear of change. And I don't think enough organizations have really wrapped their head around what that means going forward for how you need, to your point, really think about what are the needs of my people, not so that I can placate them, but so that we can do the best work for our customers and for our community. It Absolutely. should be a win-win. Absolutely. And I really love that point that the COVID pandemic and the shutdown and all that really kind of, it's like a change forced upon you. That uncertainty was all of a sudden here in front of you. And we all had, you're right, we all had to deal with it in different ways. And I think it gave so many employees and so many people a way to talk about work, a way to talk about their needs, a way to talk about things like a, a vocabulary and a language that we mm-hmm. previously all didn't have, but we're getting better at that. And I think the leaders who are going to be continue to be successful are the ones that are really listening for that. And it's not like leaders are like above or protected from the environment of their work. Like that kind of a toxic work culture can be toxic to a leader as well as to yeah. someone who is not a leader or a manager. So I mean, I think creating healthier 
stronger organizations. You're right. It's going to help everybody. We're going to do better work and treat each other better while we do it. It's, that's the dream, right? Yeah. I often like to ask the question when I meet with leaders and we're starting an engagement or we're talking about working together. What if you could get all these outcomes that you're striving for without all of the pain and conflict you experience today? When I hear leaders who, you know, talk about the politics at work, yeah. the struggle with their teams, you know, trying to get people back to the office, it's like, how's that feeling for you? Yeah. Often it doesn't feel very good, but they don't think they have a choice. Sure. And so I always love to ask, what if you could get all these outcomes, but it didn't come with all the pain and suffering? Good question. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does require a shift in perspective. Yep. It requires thought. I want to make a little bit of a pivot. Sure. Because, you know, we've talked about trust. We've talked about new ways of working and you're working on a really exciting initiative that's thinking about that at more the institutional level, you know, new ways of working in the U.S. So can you tell everyone a little bit about your work with RevHub OC and can dive into that? Happy to. Yeah. So uh, RevHub OC, one of my clients, I'm working with them on some fundraising strategies and some donor outreach. And I think this really exciting mission. So RevHub OC is a social enterprise incubator. And a social enterprise, if you're not familiar with that term, imagine a company that has the scalability and the sustainability of a for-profit married with the mission-driven and the community benefit of a nonprofit. So these are for-profit, mission-driven companies. And RevHub believes a couple things. One, they believe that social enterprises have the opportunity and the capacity to really address significant social problems, such as issues around climate change and climate action, issues of health equity, issues of educational equity. There's oftentimes a technical or an organizational solution to problems that can be brought to bear by these groups in a way that the government and that nonprofits often can't. And believe me, I love nonprofits and nonprofits are often exceptionally good at alleviating suffering and working with communities and engaging communities, but it's really hard for nonprofits to grow and to really scale their operations up, often because of the intricacies or the weaknesses of a donation-based revenue stream. Governments, on the other hand, have a lot of resources, but they're slow to react. There's lots of red tape. There's lots of infrastructure. They're also slow to abandon a project if it's not working. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for a government program to say, we're going to jettison this and try something new. So that social enterprise model becomes really flexible and interesting. And RevHub believes that those programs really have the opportunity to grow and to change the world. Quick question. Sure. How does a social enterprise differ from, let's say, a your typical private company, which has a robust ESG program? I think it's all about intent. It's like, it's got to be an impact first organization. This social mm-hmm. impact has to be a primary driver, not a outcome of- Not a nice to have. <laughs> exactly. It's a yeah. core element. The reason the company gets up in the morning, so to speak, has to be to address this problem via this channel. So that's probably the core difference. RevHub OC is building an ecosystem in Orange County, California, to grow more of these programs. We feel that Orange County has the business acumen, the capital, the innovation to really be a great learning laboratory, a great place for these to grow. 
And already RevHub is working with groups like Sustain SoCal with uh, UCI, which is a you know world-class research institution. They are working on a program to bring entrepreneurial services to underserved communities. RevHub is connecting with other community organizations to bring that social capital, that resource capital, and that actual money, financial capital to these communities to show people that entrepreneurship can be a way to build economic stability, improve your community, and really, you know, kind of uh, take control of some things. It's kind of like a whole new style of company, like something I kind of grew up thinking you're a nonprofit or a for-profit and it's an A or B situation. Profit maximizing or community benefit maximizing. Exactly. And if you're a for-profit company, you can't do any good. And if you're a nonprofit company, you can't get really big. And the social enterprise model is something that really, I think, threads that needle and, and is right between the two, takes the best elements of both models. And I think we're going to see some really exciting companies come up. RevHub not only provides incubation services, but they have a managed fund so they can invest and they attract impact investors to help them grow these companies. So it's a really exciting model. Yeah. I do think today a lot of for-profit companies would say we have an obligation to do good, but then there's a second part to that, which is, but not at the expense of shareholder value creation. And what I'm hearing with a social enterprise model is because you're saying, we're going to solve, we're going to create this value for customers and we are doing it in service of this impact to the community that you're always going to be making decisions through the lens of not just how do we profitably serve customers, but how do we make sure we're maximizing that community impact? So the community impact isn't the nice to have if we can make it work with our profits. It doesn't sit below. It sits above. Correct. Yeah, absolutely right. It is the idea The choice of good or profitable, the social enterprise model will say that that is a false choice. There's a lot of shady things you could do to make a dollar, but the social enterprise model is like, there's problems that need solutions and the innovation, the speed, the scalability of a for-profit model can really address these, but it's got to be done consciously and directly. And that's what RevHub is looking to do is to build an environment where these companies thrive. This is a huge a huge element in other world economies, UK and Canada, both have very robust social enterprise networks and systems. We don't have a lot. We're fortunate here at RevHub that we received a significant investment, $8.5 million investment from the state of California for one of our programs called the North Star Initiative, working to help underserved communities with entrepreneurs. And we're hoping that we can really leverage that to show the state that this is something that we can do at scale not just in Orange County, but up and down the state. And then ideally hoping we can show other states that they too can create incentives and environments where social enterprises thrive. Yeah. I think that's the key. It's like, it's daunting to start your own business. Yes, yes, yes. And there isn't a lot of support today for people who aren't in a product-based business or, you know, a woman or a minority owned business. Mm -hmm. And so What I like about that idea is, you know, creating some systems and support for people, I think helps it become not just a good thing for living in alignment with your values and supporting your community, but also a good thing for your business and enabling you to maybe do things that would not be embraced by traditional angel investors or VC companies. Yeah. 
it's definitely a new world for me. My background's all in traditional nonprofit. So I'm learning a lot from this team, but I think it's going to be something that really appeals to, especially a generation who is growing up seeing these significant problems, wanting to solve them, wanting to take an active role in addressing these problems. I think this social enterprise could open up a really attractive line of entrepreneurship and employment for folks that want to feel like their work is making a difference in the world. For people who might be thinking about starting a business or already have a business and are intrigued by the idea of you know, either starting a social enterprise or pivoting to a social enterprise, what guidance would you have or where would you point them to go get more information about that? I mean, I would start at revhuboc.com. I would start there. And we've got a lot of good information. We're rebuilding our website as we speak. So it's there's great stuff there. We've got a great incubator program for companies. And through some of our programs are more in the, what we call the ideation phase, which is you've got an idea, you want to try to like test it out. We're really trying to build a lot of resources to help people explore that and to share some examples of what social enterprise models look like. So I think that would be a really good place to start. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I'll make sure to put that resource in the show notes for people. Love it. Thank you. As we come to the close of our conversation, there's one question I always like to ask people, and that is, what's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom you think is outdated? Yeah, and I've thought about this one too. And a couple of ways I, I thought about going, but at the end, the keystone to good leadership is treating people like family. Like the word family, I think should be blown out the airlock and thrown into deep space when it comes to your leadership. Especially in the US where a lot of people don't have strong, healthy family relationships. That's (laughs) exactly right. It's a loaded term that not everybody has. Not everyone's coming to the word family with the same way. But more importantly, I think it feels false. It feels inauthentic. I I love the word team because that's really what you want. You want people with a shared objective and a shared vision who are holding each other accountable to go after something. I think the role of a leader is to create that team environment that's based on values and clear expectations and honest communication. That's what you need. If you're kind of mealy mouth and going in and saying, oh, we're all part of the family, like you're hiding from the truth, you're not doing it, and you're setting people up to be disappointed much like a family, disappointing each other all all the way around. So yeah, that would be my leadership thing I'd like to change in the world. I love that. And I wholeheartedly agree. My team is not my family and I love my family, but it's a very different relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for joining, Chris. This was a true pleasure. Thank you. I had a great time. I really enjoyed this opportunity and I, I look forward to listening to more episodes in the future. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Empowered Leadership. If you wish to know more about Chris and Resolute Philanthropy, you can contact them via the information available in the show notes. I've also provided a link to the other resources that were mentioned during the call. As always, thank you for joining and have a lovely day. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidence, ease, and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.